Good morning and welcome to our morning service. Good to have you here this morning as we gather together to worship the Lord on this, the Lord's Day. We welcome you on Zoom as well and uh, pray that it might be a time of blessing for all as we come together. I'm going to ask Pastor Brad now to come and read the scripture for this morning and to lead us in prayer, if you would, Pastor Brad. Scripture reading this morning. That's twice. I keep forgetting the mic, right? (laughs) Scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Acts, chapter 23. The book of Acts, chapter 23. And uh, I will read the the passage. I'll start reading at uh, verse 6 of Acts chapter 23. uh, uh, Maybe I should just uh, give you the the setting a little bit. Paul had been on his way to Jerusalem through much of the the chapters preceding this. Uh, He had finally arrived in Jerusalem in uh, Acts chapter 21. Uh, in uh, response to a request from James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, He had gone into the temple to perform a vow. Uh, It had been misunderstood. They thought uh, he had brought a Gentile with him and defiled the temple, uh, which led to a a mob scene and ultimately uh, Paul's arrest. Uh, Paul is put into custody, it's almost for his own protection at first, uh, but he's put into uh, the custody of the commander uh, in verse 33 of chapter 21, and he remains in uh, Roman uh, bonds till the end of the book. Uh, He's not free again, at least as far as the book of Acts uh, takes us. Uh, this results in a string of, uh, of trials uh, before Roman governors, before the, the Sanhedrin. Uh, and uh, Acts 23 is about the, the middle of it all. Uh, and uh, in this case, he appears before the Sanhedrin uh, at, uh, at the beginning of uh, the chapter, right at the end of chapter 22, uh, because they're trying to get a little bit of clarity on what's going on. Uh, the Roman commander and then governors know that something has happened, uh, but they don't understand why it matters. They, they don't see the uh, the issue. Uh, and so they're trying to get some clarity. So he comes before the, uh, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, which is like the Jewish council that had authority at the temple, uh, and uh, uh, the discussion ensues. So I want to pick it up actually midway through that conversation uh, in verse 6 of Acts 23. But when Paul perceived that the one part of this council were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, The chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, 
The Lord stood by him, that is, by Paul, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And they were more than forty which had made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now therefore ye with the council signify to the chief captain, the Roman, that he bring him down unto you tomorrow as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. And when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee who hath something to say unto thee. Then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, What is it that thou hast to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldst bring down Paul tomorrow into the council, as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. But do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of them more than forty men, which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee. So the chief captain then let the young man depart and charged him, See thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen two hundred at the third hour of the night, and provide them beasts that they may set Paul on and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. Well, may the Lord help us to understand his holy word. Let's come before the Lord and pray together. Holy Father, we come before you standing in awe of you, knowing that our God is great and greatly to be praised, knowing that you are the God who sends the rain on the just and on the unjust, that you are the God who rules over all, who rules wisely and with power. No one can resist our God. Thank you, Holy Father, that you are all wise. And thank you, Lord God, for your plan of redemption, that through the Lord Jesus Christ we can come before you and be accepted in the Beloved One and give to you the glory due unto your name. O Lord our God, I pray that you would help us to understand who you are. We are often troubled by the things that go on around us and in our lives and the difficulties we face, the hard decisions we may have to make. And Lord our God, we need your comfort and guidance and strength. And we need to know, O oh Lord, that you keep your promises, that you are the faithful God. Lord our God, I pray that we might trust in you. We ask, Lord God, that even in the midst of our trial and affliction, we would be able to hide under the shadow of your wings, and we would know, Lord God, that you are our refuge and strength. We pray, Holy Father, that you would help us to trust in you 
and even in the midst of trial be able to say, Be thou exalted. O Holy Father, we pray that your name would be upheld. And Father, there are many on our hearts who are suffering trials of many kinds. You have told us in your word that this will indeed be the case and will continue to be the case until Jesus comes again. And Lord, our God, they need your special care. They need to know your presence with them. They need to be strengthened in their faith. They need to be enabled to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Lord, our God, we need to know that you are God. And we need to know that you complete that which you start. Holy Father, help us to trust you. Help us to see in the Lord Jesus Christ, the very one who saves completely those who come to God by him. O Lord, our God, help us run for mercy. Help us, Lord God, that we might delight in him. Father, we pray particularly for Andrew and Cheryl and their family, and we pray that you would continue to give much strength. We know that there is much still uh, that needs to be done for this young one, but we thank you for the good reports thus far. We pray that this weekend together would be a great encouragement to the family. We ask, Lord God, that you would continue to provide everything that they need. We pray, Lord God, for others as well who are battling the effects of age and ill health. And we pray, Lord God, that you would be their constant companion. May they know your presence with them. And may they know that the promise is true. You will never leave us or forsake us. We ask, Lord God, that you would continue to be with this church. Supply everything that it needs. And we pray, Lord God, that in your good time you would supply a pastor. But, O oh Lord God, may they never forget that they have the word of God, and it prevails. And, Lord our God, I pray that you would continue to give strength and grace for every day. May the ministry expand. May the neighborhood be reached with the gospel. And may those who are laboring so hard be strengthened and built up. And may everyone be united together in prayer for the glory of the Lord. Help us, Father, to trust you and to walk in your ways. Give us grace and help, we ask, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Again, welcome, Pastor Brad. Lord bless as you open the word to us this morning. Thank you. Well, it is good to be back. I was here, actually, not all that long ago, but, uh, well, the family wedding brought us back uh, earlier than we normally would have uh, made a return visit, and so I'm glad that uh, this spot was open, and uh, I was able to come. So, uh, all right, let's, uh, let's come before the Lord and pray together. Lord, our God, thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to draw out of it what you want us to know, and that you would be gracious in sending your Holy Spirit to help us understand it, and above all, to help us supply it as we leave this place. So, Father, please give us strength and grace as you work in our hearts through your word, for your glory, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Now, uh, when I was with you in uh, August, uh, in the evening message, we developed a little bit on the theme of uh, when I am weak, then am I strong, which you might remember from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, where Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh uh, and talks about how God's grace 
given to him was sufficient for the need. We linked that up with Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul, in introducing the section on the Christian's armor, uh, urges us to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And so our, our theme at the time was, was how God strengthens us. And in the course of some applications of that theme, uh, one of our applications was we need to allow for providential wisdom. And in connection with that, uh, I, I made some reference to a phrase that occurs in both Psalm 57 and Psalm 138. We read Psalm 57 uh, this morning. We'll, we'll look at Psalm 138 as well a little later on. Uh, but it's the phrase that God will perform or perfect that which concerns me. And that's what I wanted to zero in on this morning. Uh, we've been studying at our, our church in Aurelia, we've been studying the book of Acts, and, and having studied it with you a couple of times, you know that one of the things that stands out in that book, at least stands out to me, uh, is the demonstration of the providence of God. How God makes a plan and carries it through even through some very strange means, at least strange to uh, to our eyes. Uh, that's what that hymn writer, William Cooper, meant when he wrote, God moves in a mysterious way. It's not always spelled out for us how God is using these circumstances to his glory. But the book of Acts begins with a statement in chapter 1 and verse 8 that the gospel and these people will be witnesses to the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And then the rest of the book of Acts is essentially working out that outline. Uh, that at different points you wonder how this is going to last. The the opposition, you see Peter and John get hauled off to prison. And, uh, and at, at various stages, if you've never read the book, at various stages you'll think this is never going to make it to the uttermost parts of the earth. And, and you keep reading these things and, and the difficulties and the trials and the opposition. And, and, and sometimes the difficulties inside the church itself. Are, are part of that problem. And you keep working on that, and eventually you get to chapter 28, and guess what happens? It reaches Rome, which stands in for the uttermost parts of the earth as far as the book of Acts is concerned. That was the capital of the world uh, at, uh, at the time. And, and so that's one of the key lessons of the book of Acts, how God sets out his plan and carries it through to uh, completion. So in our studies in, in Aurelia, we've come to this section of the, of the book of Acts, and over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been reminding uh, ourselves of exactly that point, uh, how uh, God continues to carry out this work. Now, sometimes God does it pretty obviously. Uh, James is killed, put to the sword in Acts chapter 12, and Peter is put in prison. Uh, what does God do? Well, he sends an angel, and the angel comes in the middle of the night, shakes Peter awake, leads him out into the street, uh, and he's free to go. Uh, in uh, Philippi, Paul is arrested and put in prison for preaching the gospel. And in the middle of the night, while they're singing praises to God, there's an earthquake. Uh, and, and so these are ways that God intervenes in the book of Acts to show us that he's at work in pretty obvious and powerful ways. We often refer to things like that as miracles, where God intervenes in a stunning and, uh, and powerful fashion. But when we talk about God's providence, 
What we usually mean by that are these more behind-the-scenes workings of God. How God works out his plan and purpose through everything that happens. In other words, even if God doesn't release Paul, and as I just mentioned, he's arrested in chapter 21 and is arrest, under arrest for the rest of the book, God doesn't send an earthquake, he doesn't send an angel, he doesn't open the doors, uh, unlock them and, and lead Paul out. He's working in, well, more mysterious ways we might say, uh, in this particular section of the book of Acts. And yet, you see his plan is still marching forward step by step. And that's what we mean by the providence of of God. It's an old word, comes from the Latin, as you probably guessed by now. And it just means to watch over. Uh, If you have a video machine at your home or or play video games, you know what the word video means then. It means to see. Uh, And so pro, to see over, to oversee, uh, to watch over things and make sure that the plan of God is uh, is carried out. You have that idea expressed, for example, in passages like Daniel 4. You remember Nebuchadnezzar uh, sent by God out into the, the fields to graze like an ox until he learns who God is. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar comes back and he says, I've learned a valuable lesson. Nobody stops God. Not all the armies of heaven and earth can come together and stay his hand. God does as he pleases. Paul states it fairly directly in Ephesians 1.11. He calls him the God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, That's who God is. Uh, That's what happens. And most of us especially love the expression of it in Romans 8. God works all things together for good to those who love God. Uh, And so the providence of God is designed not just to teach us a lesson about God. It's to teach us to trust him to rely on him, whatever the circumstances, to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord and, in the language of Scripture, repeatedly to wait on the Lord and be of good cheer and be of good strength as we wait on him. So what I want to do this morning is uh, is three things. Uh, I've been reading a, a book somebody gave me. Uh, it's a series of articles by Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, and he's talking in the section I'm reading right now about the Puritans as pastors and, uh, and so on. It's rather a large book. And so I've worked my way through a bit of it anyway. Uh, but uh, somewhere along the line, he mentioned that there was uh, an early Puritan uh, wrote out, you know, how they should preach sermons. Uh, and uh, and so it starts with the, you know you deal with the text and then you explain the text and then you you apply the text and they called those the uses of the text uh, and a really good Puritan could get up to twenty or twenty five uses by the time he was done. Now uh, we're not going to do that. You can rest at ease. Uh, there will only be three applications in our uh, application section, but I'm going to more or less follow that pattern. We're going to use Acts 23 as an illustration, and then just a couple of quick points of explanation, and then some applications. Uh, So uh, you may want to frame your sermon notes, because I just gave you a three-point outline, and it's not 
alliteration. Uh, so there you go. You can, uh, you can frame that one and keep it for future reference. Uh, okay, let's start with the illustration. Uh, particularly striking, at least to, to, to my mind, are verses 11 and 12 of Acts 23. Those are really the two verses I want you to notice. Now, the book of Acts, as I've already mentioned, has a fairly pointed uh, and, and narrow purpose. It's describing the witness to the gospel uh, in this progress from Jerusalem to Rome. So it, it has a very specific purpose. But it's still the case that we can look at these two verses and see really in a, a tiny form what's going on in human history. Now, that's a pretty big claim, I guess, but let me try to explain what I mean. Look at verse 11. The night following, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Good so far, right? Promise of God, this is what's going to happen. Now look at the very next verse. When it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Interesting. Here you have a microcosm of Christian experience in the history of the world. On the one hand, you have what God has in mind, the plan of God, the promises of God. And we are being urged to believe in the promises of God, even when there are all these forces that stand in the way. So here are the two positions. God's plan, Paul will arrive in Rome to bear witness to the gospel. Human plan, Paul's enemies assert that he'll be dead before supper. They make a vow to kill him. And there you've got it. That's what's going on in our world. God's plan, human plans. Who wins? Pretty simple concept, right? Uh, who wins? Well, of course, God does. And so the rest of what we have here is, is fleshing that out a little bit. Uh, how does this work out? And, and we can look at the opposition. What is the enemy have uh, in, in, in his arsenal? What's in the enemy's toolbox? Well, as you read on in the book of Acts, you'll find that God's plan faces hatred. They, they despise Paul because they despised Jesus Christ, and Paul is bearing witness to Christ. And, and they've had trouble mustering evidence that will stick partly because it was a lie. Uh, They're saying that Paul desecrated the temple, and he didn't. Uh, and so right from the start, they have an uphill battle. And, and so they're trying to make these charges stick, and then they have to make them stick in such a way that the Romans cared. Because if the only thing is they desecrated the temple, the Romans would be completely uninterested in that. And so that's what's going on. There's all these little twists and, and plots and, and, and ploys and lawyers come into it and so on. They, all of these things are going on in order to try and get Paul convicted of something that will require the death sentence. You may recognize this tactic. It was the same thing they did at the cross. Exactly the same tactics are, are at work again. And so there's this hatred against Paul that is just raging against him and is going to try and find any way to convict him. And if they can't do it that way, they'll just hide behind the bushes and kill him as he goes by. 
They, they want to get rid of Paul. So there's this horrifying opposition, this, this violent, uh, ready to break any law, which is kind of ironic, because what they're accusing Paul of is breaking the law. Uh, and so they think, well, the way to deal with somebody like that is to kill him, right? Uh, murder him, and, and that'll make everything great. Uh, anyway, that, that's the, the, the one thing. And then they face Roman injustice. Now, some scholars read the book of Acts and think that Paul was actually favoring the Romans and wanting to show that uh, the Romans and the Christians got along famously. If you're comparing it to the hatred against Paul, you might have a point. But as a matter of fact, the Romans don't look too good in this passage either because of their injustice. Three times, three different judges declare Paul innocent. Nobody releases him. He's in jail, and, and the, the trial scene here, I've only read you a snippet of it, the whole thing is at least over two years. Felix leaves him in prison for two years. And so here is God's promise that Paul is going to make it to Rome and bear witness to the gospel in Rome, and then there's a plot against his life under my underlining this hatred, and there's this injustice of the Romans who won't set him free. Everything seems to be against Paul testifying in Rome. And you can add just another little thing, although it's of a different nature. But a little bit later on in the book of Acts, as they're heading for Rome, there's a huge gale. You remember that? And, and there's a shipwreck, and uh, and the boat is smashed to pieces on uh, on the, uh, the the sandbars and so on. And and they, you know, those who can't swim have to hang on to a plank that's floating by and make it to shore and and so on. Everything is against Paul. Not only everything human, but but even natural disasters. Everything is coming against Paul. So here is the plan of God, and and there's all of this against it. Now, I, I want to try and make this as as clear as I can, because I'm not just saying that God's power is so great that he was able to keep Paul through all of this so that none of the plans succeed. Now, that's certainly true. None of the plans do succeed, and, and Paul ends up in Rome at the end of the book. But there's more to it than that. It's not just that God is able to overrule the plan, the, the plans of the enemy. It's that he uses them. That when the enemy takes action against Paul... The end result is to move God's plan farther forward. He actually uses what they are, are trying to do. In other words, they, they uncover the, the, the plot uh, of, of what's going on and, and what happened. Well, I read that in the, the rest of chapter 23. After they discover the plot, uh, the, uh, the commander says, the way we would put it in our time, is that this is above my pay grade. Uh, and, and so he's had enough of trying to deal with Paul and, and the Jewish council. And so he says... 
this is the governor's problem now. Uh, and, and so he, he prepares this, uh, this force. Look at the ones who are, are taking Paul to Caesarea. Uh, he gets, you know, this, this guard together, 200 soldiers, uh, horsemen, three score and ten, if you're not familiar with your American history and, and Lincoln's address, that means 70, right? Uh, three score and, and 10, a score is 20. Uh, and Spearman 200 at the third hour of the night. <laughs> the Roman army is escorting Paul out of Jerusalem to Caesarea because Caesarea was the main uh, seat of the government. You see what's happening? Paul just moved one step closer to Rome. The enemy's goal is to kill him. What actually happened is he's on his way, surrounded by an armed force to make sure he gets there. God doesn't just overrule the plot so they don't kill Paul. Paul adds, or God adds their plot to his purpose. And, and the reason this matters is that it means that when the enemy comes against us, everything that he does actually solidifies and moves forward the purpose of God in the providence of God, because God ultimately is in charge. Let me give you another example. Uh, Festus, who follows Felix as, as governor in chapter 25, uh, hears of Paul's case. He's trying to figure it out, and just like the commander, he doesn't understand what's going on. Uh, and so he says, Paul, listen, let me take you back to Jerusalem and they can figure all of this out. And that leads Paul to appeal to Caesar. He may not be getting justice from the Romans, but at least it's better than going back to Jerusalem. Well, where is Caesar's court? Well, of course, it's in Rome. So when Paul appeals to Caesar, which he can do because he's a Roman citizen, uh, what's happening? Well, now the Roman army is going to take him all the way to Rome. Uh, and, and so God's purpose is getting carried out through the injustice and the hatred of the enemy. The enemy is doing its level best to short-circuit the plan of God, and everything they do actually advances it. It's a little bit like mowing your lawn when your dandelions are in seed. You hate those dandelions and you want to wipe them out, so you get out your lawnmower and you mow over those seeds and you've just seeded the whole neighborhood. <laughs> That's what it's like to try and stop God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar learned. Nobody can stop you. Nobody can say to God, what are you doing? He's God. And that's what we're seeing here. That was the point, incidentally, in 2 Corinthians 12 that we looked at last time. Paul writes that God allowed a messenger of Satan to buffet me. A messenger of Satan. And what did that accomplish? Made Paul more humble and therefore a better witness. Satan managed to turn Paul into a more effective instrument for the gospel. Now, that wasn't the plan, but that was the outcome. And that's why Paul looks at that and says, God's grace is sufficient. What's going to hinder the purposes of God getting fulfilled? Who's going to stop God? Well, nobody is. If everything that your enemy can do actually advances the plan, then the plan can't fail. 
Let me put it another way, borrowing Paul's more simple words. He can say it in a line. It takes me a paragraph. But do you remember what he said in Romans 8 again? If God be for us, who can be against us? Simple as that, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, of course, it's not as simple as that because it doesn't look like that to us. It's behind the scenes. And so that's where we have to think this through. Let me give you that uh, couple of quick points of explanation. Uh, and uh, we'll use Romans 8.28 just because it's so well, well known to us. Uh, we, there's two things that I want to underline. This is a huge topic. I mean, there's many more things that could be said. But let me just give you two things quickly. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good. Two points about the providence of God there. First of all, it is comprehensive. It is all things. We saw that in Ephesians 1.11 as well. Uh, God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Uh, so it, it's comprehensive. Now, you might argue that Paul's case was unique because he was an apostle and the book of Acts is, is tracing out this particular theme. But then you have the witness of these texts that say all things. In other words, Paul knows what happened to him in Acts. And when he writes to the Roman church, he says, well, here's a lesson for you. All things work together for good to those who love God. We can extrapolate, we can see that lesson, and many other scriptures help us to apply that. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You might have followed me so far and think that what I mean is that when you're sitting in jail, all of this will be crystal clear to you. How God is carrying out this plan and what's going to happen next and so on. Please understand that that is not what I'm saying. You are going to be in the dark about this. Can you imagine, Paul? God gives him a promise, and the next day his nephew pops in and says, guess what I just heard, Paul? They're going to try to kill you. Now, Paul doesn't know the outcome of these things, except what God told him. So we know certain things, but by no means do we know everything. And so if you, you know, phone me up next, next week or something like that and say, this is what has happened to me, what is God doing? Um, I'm not going to answer you. Uh, I am going to be great to talk to you and everything, but I'm not going to answer you because I don't know, right? It, it's God moving in mysterious ways. So that's not my point. My point is that even when these wicked hands come against us, as they did against the Lord Jesus, ultimately it is God's purpose and plan that is carried out. James, in Acts chapter 12, did die, even if Peter was delivered from prison. You remember that great text, with Joseph way back in Genesis, when his brothers had you know, thrown him into the well, sold him into slavery, and, and did all of that to him. After their father dies, the brothers suddenly have a panic attack. Our father, you know, he was kind of intervening a little bit. Now that he's gone, 
Is Joseph going to take vengeance? That was very common in those days, pretty common today too. Uh, Is Joseph going to now get his vengeance on us? And so they come to Joseph with this great spiel they worked out, you know, trying to gain his favor and all of this. And and Joseph just kind of stops them and says, look, you meant this for evil. In other words, he doesn't let him off the hook. He doesn't shrug his shoulders and say, yeah, no problem. He doesn't say that. He says, you meant this for evil. I know that. But God meant it for good. And today he's saved many people alive because of it. He trusted the providence of God. That's more what we're talking about. The second thing in Romans 8, God works all things together for good. That's an important qualification because it underlines that it is compassionate providence to those who love him. It is good for us. He makes the grass grow. He sends the rain. He sees the sparrow fall. How how can you make this more clear that he means the details of our lives? God sees, he knows, he acts, and it is good. And here's where those psalms come into play. And if you can find the two psalms uh, and kind of keep your fingers in both of them, we're going to come back to them a little bit. Uh, as we work through our applications. The two Psalms are Psalm 57 and Psalm 138. So uh, now I brought a paper clip and it put it on here so it makes it real easy, but uh, I'm assuming you probably didn't think to bring a paper clip. Uh, so just try to keep your fingers in there. Psalm 57 and Psalm 138. Uh, we read Psalm 57 verse 2, I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. And then the last verse of Psalm 138, the Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Now the phrases are actually the same. One is translated perform, one is translated perfect, but it's the same word. And and it depends whether you're emphasizing the process or the result. Uh, God does all of this. It's God who is at work. He performs all things for me to the end. He perfects all things for me. So you see that, that connection. Same word, uh, just emphasizing a slightly different part of the process. Uh, and, and both of these psalms underline the good things. Uh, he cries out for mercy in verse 1 of Psalm 57. Uh, I cry out to God in verse 2, verse 3. He shall send from heaven and save me. Uh, again, uh, Psalm 138, verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch thine hand forth against the wrath of thine, mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. So both Psalms use this phrase, you will perform or perfect everything that concerns me, and connects it with he will save me. The Lord works all things together for good. It's a good purpose for those uh, who love the Lord. His good purpose is to save. Well, as I said, many more things that could be said about that, uh, but this is becoming a bit too much like a Puritan sermon that would go to mid-afternoon. So we'll pick up the pace a little bit. Let's move to uh, the applications. Why is this uh, such an important point to make? Uh, Let me just underline these three things. First of all, understanding the providence of God enables confident worship. Psalm 57, verse 5, 
Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. Uh, and again later in the psalm, in Psalm 138 at the beginning, I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple. Praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy, thy truth. Now, you remember Second Peter 3 talks about the scoffer. And the scoffer argues that God is absent from the world because you can't see him at work. Now, of course, in order to get to this position, you have to assume that what you see around you is not God's doing. And that's exactly what the providence of God is challenging. Uh, If you understand what this doctrine is, it helps you to see how much a factor God is in this in this world. What is the basic Christian confession? Well, I mean, there's many aspects to that. But one way of putting it is the way Paul does in Romans 10 that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Now, we bear witness to, if you're an unbeliever here, we bear witness to you, to those who are around us, to our neighbors. The, The witness that we bear is that Jesus is Lord. And that every man, woman, and child in the universe needs to bow down and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, as Philippians 2 uh, would put it. But the evidence isn't clear to us. You bear witness to that, but somebody turns and looks at you and, 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 and says, how can you assert that God is being exalted in all the earth? How can you say something like that? Why should I believe that Jesus is Lord? And sometimes they'll throw in personal experience. This happened to me and I prayed and nothing happened. In other words, the God of all the universe doesn't necessarily jump out of the genie bottle the minute we ask him to. Uh, He doesn't do my will. Uh, That really isn't a shocker, that God doesn't do our will. That's not the way this works. But we look at that and we argue the point. I don't see how Jesus is Lord. Again, Psalm 57 Notice the title that I I read to you in the scripture reading. When did David write this psalm? When he fled from Saul in the cave. How often do we think that these inspiring writings like the psalms were written in the quietness of somebody's study? Now, maybe this is just my way of thinking, but maybe you picture the fact that David had, uh, you know, a nice home on the Riviera, his, his summer residence or whatever. And he's sitting there, you know, perfectly content. The birds are twittering in the trees outside. And, and he writes down this psalm and it's full of all these ma- majestic phrases. Where did he write the psalm? In a cave. And he ducked into that cave hiding for his life. Because the king and his army were outside trying to find him to kill him. This is not exactly an idyllic setting. David is running for his life. He ducks into this cave. And maybe I've just been in the wrong caves in my life. But I always picture him kind of huddling in the back, in the dark. Water dripping down his neck from the the top of the, the cave. And he writes down. What would you write down under that circumstance? Well, the first part is pretty obvious. Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto thee, me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Now, here is important perspective. 
In the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. Now think about that. What is David saying? I ran into this cave to save my life, but this cave is not my refuge. Your wings are. I hide in the shadow of your wings. This cave is a great means to an end, but the Lord is my refuge. Do you see that? And that's why David can go on to say, I will cry unto God most high. How many of us sitting in the cave under those conditions would say, there is no God. The atheist was right after all. But do you see that's exactly the opposite of what he says? He says, this cave proves that he is God. Because not even the king and all his army can find me. I'll just hide in God until these calamities are overpassed. I'll just find my refuge in the shadow of your wings. And that'll be just fine. That doesn't stop the water dripping down his neck. That doesn't stop him trying to get to sleep at night, hearing the clatter of all of the army outside the, the cave. But it does make it so, as verse 7 says, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. Be thou exalted, O God. That's what's so intriguing about this. Psalm 138 doesn't give us a circumstance. It does tell us it's a psalm of David. But I want you to notice that he says much the same thing. As he opens the psalm, I will worship toward thy holy temple, praise thy name for thy loving kindness and thy truth. Mercy and truth. He knows God. He knows God is full of mercy. He, know God, he knows God doesn't lie. You have magnified your word above all thy name. Now, that's an interesting expression. You've magnified your word above all, all your name. Uh, probably what he's getting at there is that uh, the, the name of the Lord is, of course, God's attributes. And, and a, he's a Bible student. He, he's read his Bible. He, he knows who God is, and he knows the attributes of God. He's, he's read about that. And then comes the word of God. He's got a promise that he is one day going to be king. And God magnifies his word above all his name. In other words, God keeps his promise. God does what he says he's going to do. My experience in, in these circumstances underline the truth of what your word declared about God. And your word to me stands. In the day when I cried, you answered me and strengthened me with strength in my soul. You built me up because you are God and you are full of mercy and truth. I've known you in the past. Now I know you even more. Here is even clearer displays of what God can do. If we are scoffers, we think we are on firm ground. Scripture warns us about our arrogance. Do you remember in 2 Corinthians 4, he talks about the blindness caused by the God of this age? If you are scoffing against God and, and thinking that, that God is nothing to do with this world and you can live your life without any thought of God, which is the, the basic way we think naturally, if that's how we think, Scripture comes along and says, be very careful. Are you sure you're right? Are you sure God has nothing to do with your life? 
Are you sure that He's not the one who sends the rain that grows the food that feeds you? Are you not, like Romans 1 suggests, suppressing the obvious truth that God creates and sustains the universe? The declaration that Jesus is Lord is right. He is preeminence in everything. The Scripture underlines, for example, from Hebrews 1, He upholds all things by His powerful Word. He upholds all things by His powerful Word. And the reason that matters is that He is the one who by Himself purged our sins. The providence of God, the fact that Jesus Christ rules over all, is the hinge of my salvation. If there is anything going on in this universe that is not under His hand, and I can't explain all the details of how that works out, but if there's anything that's not under His hand, how can I be sure it won't upset my salvation? How can I be sure it won't prove to be stronger than God somehow? But Scripture comforts me. There is no such thing. Worship God, because He alone is God. He made us. He Himself. And by Himself, He purges our sins. In his message in Athens in Acts chapter 17, Paul even traces this back to our every breath. Every breath under the hand of God. In Him we live and move and have our being. The proper human response is to cry out, Be thou exalted, O Lord, in the heavens. He really is the true and living God. It enables confident worship. And connected with that, it enables compassionate witness. In Psalm 138, he goes on to say, In the day when I cried, you answered me, strengthened me with the strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise thee, O Lord, when they hear the words of thy mouth. (laughs) When they hear you, how are they going to hear the words of God's mouth? Well, David's going to say them. It will be proclaimed. He will make it known. One of the things that amazes me, and I I admit that says more about me than I, I want you to know, but one of the things that amazes me during this course of Paul's trials at the end of the book of Acts is how patiently he answers every trial. Like He comes before these various courts, courts that have a track record of injustice, I mean, by the second or third one, it's pretty clear Paul's not getting justice here. Uh, That's pretty clear. And yet, he approaches each one, and he approaches with a defense that is more gospel presentation than legal defense. Uh, Let me, uh, again, I know our time's going, you're being very patient. Not that you have a choice, but I'll I'll try to make this quickly. Just to give you a a couple of examples, he includes the call to repent and believe. At the end of chapter 24, Felix um, knows he's innocent, doesn't want to set him free because he doesn't want to anger the Jews, and so he leaves Paul in jail. And every, he gives him a lot of freedom, like he, people can come and minister to his needs and, and that kind of thing, but he's still in jail. And it says that he he called for Paul and he heard him, verse 24, concerning the faith in Christ 
And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled. Repentance and faith. That's central in the book of Acts to the the proper response of the gospel. So here is a judge who's trying to do your enemies a favor and won't set you free, having you in for coffee to have a discussion. And he talks to him about the gospel. I can think of one or two other things I might have thought of saying. But he witnesses to Christ. And well, he, he does it more in chapter 26. Uh, uh, Festus brings in Agrippa, and they're still trying to get a handle on what to do with Paul. And, and so Paul gives his defense, which is effectively his testimony, which turns into his mission statement. What am I doing? You want to know what I'm doing that got me into the trouble? Here it is. This is what Christ told me to do. Open their eyes. Turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. How's that for your legal defense? You want to know why I'm in trouble, Agrippa? It's because I keep telling people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be forgiven. I keep bearing witness to the gospel. Verse 20, he explains how he did this. I went to Jerusalem, Judea, then to the Gentiles. Sounds a lot like Acts 1.8, in fact. That they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Again and again, he deals graciously. And then he, he gets on a little bit farther. And, uh, and, and Festus, just, Paul, you're mad uh, that you're, you're talking like that. But he keeps pressing the point. I'm not mad, Festus. I speak the words of truth and soberness. The king, Agrippa, knows these things before whom I speak freely. I'm persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. It wasn't done in the corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. You see what he's done? He's taken over the thing. I mean, they bring him in. They're in their great robes and pomp and circumstance. Paul is brought in maybe in shackles. I don't know, but he's brought in as a prisoner. And by the end of the chapter, Paul's in charge, bearing witness to Jesus Christ before some of the mightiest in the land. How could that have happened if he hadn't been arrested? How could it have happened if he hadn't been held unjustly in this court for two years? This is the hand of God. And because Paul believes that, he believes who God is, he believes the promise of God, because he's sure of that, he still bears witness to Christ compassionately. You see, if Paul is innocent, then they need to deal with his message. As we saw in Psalm 138, the Lord makes me strong in my soul. And kings will join the chorus of praise when they hear of his testimony. At one point, the Christians, knowing Paul is going to be arrested in Rome, try to stop, or in Jerusalem, try to stop him from going. And Paul says, you're breaking my heart, but I'm going to Jerusalem. And finally, the church, realizing what they're up against, shrug their shoulders and say, the will of the Lord be done. God is in charge. May God carry out his plan. And the third thing, it enables a consistent walk. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. We walk in a dangerous land, strangers and pilgrims, 
The devil is described as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But in the midst of all of this, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. In fact, when Peter says Satan is like a roaring lion in 1 Peter 5, he says the response is to resist him, steadfast in the faith. Is it scary to become a Christian in a day like ours? A little scarier now, at least it seems to some of us to be so, than it was 50 years ago. Do you find yourself as a Christian somewhat hesitant to speak up for the Lord? When trial comes into your life, do you tend to become a little bit bitter and withhold obedience from God because you're a little upset with the way he's doing things? There's help for this in the doctrine of the providence of God. If we can understand that he works all things after the counsel of his own will, we don't have to know how he does it. We don't have to know all the ins and outs. We just need to know that he does it. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. We can trust him. We can worship him. We can witness for him. Here's how Paul put it in 1 Thessalonians 5. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Or Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. Amen. Father, help us to understand your word. Help us to understand you. Lord, show us the things that we need to know. We trust you for the things we don't know. And we know that your word is to be followed, to be listened to, to be practiced. Help us, Lord. We sense our weakness. We don't always grasp that your hand is at work. But please, Lord, help us to trust you. For Jesus' name's sake, amen.